We're going to be back in Galatians chapter 5 again this morning. Galatians chapter 5. I think it was a heartwarming time last Lord's Day as we gathered around the table. Hearing from our brother, uh, Greg Baker, pastor in Utah. But prior to that, I had been spending some Lord's Day's uh, sermons walking through this very familiar text in Galatians which gives us a basic understanding of living our lives for God's glory and what it means to be His church. And I'm not sure where I'm going to go after this, to be very honest with you. I might do one more Lord's Day in in thinking about something in particular, uh, but I am eager to get back to Revelation. I I started hungering a little bit to study Revelation uh, this week, but it has been a nice break for me. I just want you to know that. This is a little more familiar territory. We began uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, where Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And Paul is writing to the Galatian Christians who are being told by other Christians that they were required to keep the Jewish law from the Old Testament if they wanted to please God. And Paul reacts strongly to this falsehood in the letter because Christ Jesus died to release us from being bound to living under legal code. Rather, Paul says in this text, we are set free from living in slavery to Jewish law. We're already accepted in Christ. We're free to make decisions about how we ought to walk and please God. Decisions that are informed by the prayer as we seek for wisdom. Decisions that are informed by God's word. But he warns them in this verse, don't use that freedom to make decisions as an occasion for your flesh. That is a self-gratifying choice that serves your self-interest. Because we can make these choices. No one is making us be joyful or helpful or faithful or any of those things. Rather, he says, you choose to serve one another. And the context is serving one another in the body of Christ. That's a choice that we have as believers in Christ. And it's significant, I think, that he says here, as we might expect to say, him to say, uh, you know, don't use your... uh, Freedom as an opportunity to deflect, but through love, serve God. Give the gospel. Serve the Lord with all your heart. But he doesn't say that. He says, serve one another. He, he puts it right where we live because we can say we love God all day long and say we desire to serve him. But our service for the Lord is so often tied to how we respond to meet the needs of other people. Are we aware of them around us and are we thinking about their needs or only ourselves? Now, the question arises right away then, and rightfully so. If we are not living under the law, if we don't have a lot of rules to tell us what to do in given situations, how are we going to know what decision to make? And several of you are university students. Uh, you have a little law of your own. I believe it's called a student handbook. And on campus, the question of whether or not you are pleasing the school administration has to do with whether or not you are following that legal code. And if student life says you ought to be warned or disciplined and they make an accusation, they have to be able to point to a particular law 
that you have violated. That's the dynamic of following authority based on rules or laws. And it's something that we don't live under merely at a school. Any school has rules. The rules differ from school to school, but any school has rules. We also live under rules in the workplace. Probably most of you, unless you're self-employed and you just call all the shots, have a particular system that you have to follow. And all of us live under the legal code of the United States when we're in this country. But when it comes to our spiritual life, how do we know how to please God if law is taken away? And Paul says, yes, God has removed law, but he has given us something far better in its place. Actually, he has given us someone far better in its place. He has given us the Holy Spirit who leads us away from the desire to feed our flesh and leads us into a desire to please God. If you have a desire to please God in your life, as a believer in Christ, that is a ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't take that for granted. Don't think it's self-motivated. It's not. It's something that God has done. And in fact, it's, it's part and parcel of our, our very salvation that he has done this for us. It's one of the reasons we know we're really a believer. And that's what Paul explains in verses 16 through 26. So let's look at this text one more time together. And then I want to draw out something in particular that we didn't look at last time we looked at this text. So Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do, the bad things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This list is very striking to me. First of all, it's striking because there's a lot of really bad things in here. But there's also some things that we see in our own lives more often. Fits of anger, perhaps, jealousy, envy. And notice that there isn't any differential here between these kinds of sins. They're all sins of uh, sins against the Spirit of God, sins against God himself that we can commit. And, and while some of them are more excusable, some of them think, well, everybody does that. Some of them aren't so overt. They are all in a pathway that God has warned us, do not walk down this path. If, if these kinds of things characterize your life, you have no reason to think that you are really a believer in Christ. Let me make sure I, I'm understood clearly here. I'm not saying I know whether or not you're a believer in Christ based on whether or not you have these sins in your life. I'm saying that you, before the Lord, if you see these patterns in your life and you don't care about them and you don't think of changing them and they don't bother you, you yourself have no reason to think that you are a believer in Christ because the Spirit does not lead us in this direction. And so he continues, the fruit of the Spirit, by contrast, is love, joy, peace, goodness, or, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, there is no law that regulates these things. This is not about legal code. This is about the Spirit. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus, he says, has, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Guess who leads them to do that? The Spirit leads them to do that. So he says, if we live by the Spirit, if we have the Holy Spirit of God within us, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And he goes back to this whole idea of serving one another. When we looked at this passage a couple of Sundays ago, my title was The Dynamics of Walking in the Spirit. And the word dynamics refers to how something works to bring about development or change. So we explored how exactly it is that the Holy Spirit leads us to do God's will and to please Him. By probing the language of the verbs in this text, walking by the Spirit, verse 16, being led by the Spirit, verse 18, keeping in step with the Spirit, verse 25, as you see here, we recognize that the Holy Spirit guides us into obedience while constraining us from sin. But then we have to respond to the Holy Spirit by yielding in the direction he wants us to go. And we yield to him as we search the scriptures that he, the Holy Spirit, wrote. And as we pray for wisdom and as we walk with other godly believers who have been down this path, who can help us and encourage us and show us how to do this. And also, as we really want to please God. We're not going to find God's will unless we really want to find His will. I don't mean like we're, we're, we're wanting to find it with all our heart. We're just gritting our teeth hoping to find God's will. I just mean a genuine desire. God's not trying to hide anything from us. But we just have to genuinely want it. And this morning, I want to go a step further and try to help us understand how essential all of this is. How essential it is to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, that we follow Him, that we really do listen to Him, if we are going to know how to please God as individuals and as a church. And we are convinced of how essential it is when we realize what Paul is saying here, how much better it is to follow the leading of the Spirit than to live by legal code. That's what he's trying to convince us of in this text. In other words, instead of evaluating our holiness... By checking off preformed boxes in our minds. Have I done this? Have I done that? Did I say this right? Did I stay away from that? And so forth. Paul says it is far better to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit may lead you to adopt a particular standard in your life or a rule that you personally follow because you say, no, for me, I need to stay away from this or I need to make, make sure I'm doing this. And the Spirit has led you into that. But when we talk about living by law versus living by the Spirit, if we, if we talk about what Paul is bringing up here, we're talking about an approach to the Christian life that Paul is trying to correct in the letter of Galatians. An approach whereby we think that God is more pleased with us because we're merely following a list of do's and don'ts or that we are a better quality Christian because we are able to keep this list better than somebody else. Or that somehow, through our own effort, we're going to make ourselves holy before God. But maybe you're a person who has already rejected this idea of a holiness checklist. Maybe you have thought, you know what, I'm not following those rules. That's legalism. I am completely done with that. And there are a lot of believers today who think that way. They grew up perhaps in context and in, in, in traditions that that was really drilled into them. And, and, and they realize that there's a misstep there and, and they're done with it. 
And I would tell you, fine, but be careful. Because you can rightly reject a legalistic approach to the Christian life and still not be walking in the Spirit. And then what do you have? You can take a lackadaisical or apathetical approach to your walk with the Lord. I mean, I'm okay. I do good things. I'm a Christian. God's okay with me. And yet you're not actively seeking to please God, searching the Scriptures, taking your knees before God, asking God for wisdom. Why not? Worse yet, you can reject a legalistic approach that puts you on the defensive so that you live your life in a reactionary mode. I think we all have met people like this or maybe heard of them or maybe read their blogs. So that your mission in life is to hate everything you think is legalistic and to pass judgment on it. And you look at all of life as if your mission is to be against this other thing. So that the only thing that defines you is that you hate something else. Soon you're introducing yourself as a recovering fundamentalist. And maybe you even start that blog or that website so you can broadcast your new revelation and get attention from 10 or 12 other bitter people. And then maybe you begin to invest in other causes like wokeness and social justice and you begin to espouse views that are actually antithetical to clear biblical teaching. And then you pass judgment on everyone else for not seeing the world the way you do. It's very sad and pathetic because in the end, you end up simply exchanging one set of legal code for another set of legal code. And all along, you are not walking in the Spirit, prayerfully searching the Scriptures to see what it is God does want you to do and yielding what the Spirit is telling you. Let me say, if you want to really hinder your spiritual growth, if you want to really stunt it, live your life not to be something you hate instead of living your life to be something that God loves. And if you live it in the second way, that is a ministry of the Spirit in your life. So whatever path you're on this morning, whether you're saying, I'm struggling to walk by the Spirit, or maybe you can look and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not really actively trying to live my life in the Spirit. Wherever you are this morning, all of us, need to listen closely to what Paul says here and to be convinced that the life lived in the Spirit is supreme to following legal code far better than following a list of do's and don'ts because this is the way the Lord has given us to love Him and to obey Him. So, why is it that walking in the Spirit is so much better than living legal code? Three reasons this morning. First of all, compared to following the law, the Holy Spirit alone, the Holy Spirit alone, is constantly with us. Compared, compared to the law, the Holy Spirit, between the two, is the only one who is constantly with us. A law is something on the outside. It's something I have to observe and learn how to follow. But the Holy Spirit dwells within us and continually stays with us and will never leave us. We see this right here in verse 25 of our text. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if we are living in Christ through the Holy Spirit of God, and, and we are because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, then he says we should be obeying the Spirit or keeping in step with Him, moving forward as the Spirit leads, moving back as the Spirit says step back. But what is amazing is that the Holy Spirit's ministry to us is constant. He never stops his ministry to us. Now, sometimes he stops working through us and starts working on us. And, and 
And we've all had that experience. If you're a believer in Christ, you've had that experience. But his ministry is there. In fact, if there is any question about this, Paul even says in Romans 8, 9, that if you do not have the Spirit of God within you, you do not belong to Jesus Christ. You are not a true believer. So the Spirit is a promise. He's a guarantee from God that you belong to Christ and that you're going to be guided by the will of God into living the way Jesus Christ wants you to live as opposed to living by the law. Have you ever gotten in trouble because you didn't know the right thing to do? I mean, you did something that you didn't know was against the law or the rule wherever you were, whatever context it was in, because you didn't know there was a rule against that. Or maybe you didn't do something you were supposed to do because you didn't know you were supposed to do that that was expected of you. Wouldn't it have been much better if you had all those rules memorized so you would know what to do and what not to do? Well, in a sense, this is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's like an umpire. He checks us. In fact, this very dynamic of the Spirit being constantly with God's people to guide them is exactly what God promised that the Spirit would do way back in the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant, if we can think back for just a minute here, under the Old Covenant that God had given his people and God always always uh, interacts with his people based on a covenant, an agreement that he has with them. Going back to the covenant he had made with the Jews at Mount Sinai, starting in Exodus chapter 19, they had, to, uh, they had agreed to obey the Lord by loving him and, and following the law that he had given to them with all their heart. And in turn, God promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. But rather than faithful obedience, the Israelites, as you know, throughout their time in the land, continued to worship other gods and disobey the law. And finally, the judgment God had warned them about time and time again, and Moses spelled it out for them. If, if, you, if you follow idols, God, God brought you out of exile. He can put you back. Another nation would come against them and conquer them and carry them away and the survivors would would have to go live in another land. This is what God said would happen if they did not turn back to him. And it happened. But even as the judgment was coming, even as the nation of Babylon was destroying them and carrying them away as captives, God's prophets were proclaiming that God was not done with them. In fact, we heard a little bit of that from Zechariah this morning as Brother Doug read it. God was going to give them a new covenant. And through this new covenant, they would no longer disobey God. But they would have a desire to love Him and to serve Him. A desire to love Him and serve Him. Put right in their hearts. For example, in Jeremiah 31, The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer each one will teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, now we have to know the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin 
no more. Do you see the beauty here of God's promise? God will no longer have his will something that was expressed merely in an external document. God would actually write his law on their hearts so they would know at all times what pleases God. And everyone who has the law written on the hearts will know the Lord. And not only that, but God himself would forgive them and cleanse their sins. Now, how was God going to write his law on their hearts? How was that going to work? I was going to you know, take his divine pen and actually write on the hearts. Uh, no, that's not it at all. We get more information from another prophet, from Ezekiel in chapter 36. During God's judgment on Israel and their exile to Babylon, Jeremiah was God's prophet in Jerusalem, preaching to the people. And Ezekiel was God's prophet in Babylon, where the people were being led away to, and he was preaching to them. So they were getting it on both sides, exactly what God wanted them to know. So what does God say to Ezekiel about this? He says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's talking about what's going to happen to them after he's, he, they're, they're out from utter judgment. One day, he says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So this is marvelous. This is the answer to how God's people will finally be able to love God and to serve him so that they can be saved. Here, God promises to cleanse them and give them a new heart, a soft heart, notice, a heart of flesh. Not a heart of stone, a rock-hard heart. We use the same metaphor today. But a heart of stone, a soft heart, a yielding heart, a heart that wants to follow God, a tender heart. And God will put His Spirit within them. And notice, He will cause them. Do you see that? He will cause them to walk in His statutes and carefully obey Him. So, Jeremiah explains this new covenant in terms of having the law written on their hearts, but Ezekiel refers to the law that it's it's written on their heart because God's Holy Spirit, the very author of the law, will be placed within them. So they will move from an old covenant, an old agreement with God under which they had to follow the law, to a new covenant in which God would make them righteous through his spirit. And this new covenant will be realized when God finally gathers his people into the millennial kingdom at the climax of Revelation. See, we're going back to Revelation eventually here. But that's when all of these promises will finally ultimately be fulfilled. It's in the millennial kingdom. That's why part of the new covenant promise is that God will gather his people, the Jews, into their own land. That's why you see that there. The reason that we Christians enjoy the Holy Spirit, even though we're not yet in the millennial kingdom, is that Christ promised that we would have the Holy Spirit also. He's already poured out the Holy Spirit. This part of the new covenant, you could say, has already taken place. It's one of the new covenant promises that we enjoy in the church. Now we know ahead of time what it means 
to walk in the Spirit. Now, what they are not told through Jeremiah and Ezekiel here is that the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will make all of this possible through his death and resurrection and his ascension. Jesus Christ ascends and then he pours out the Spirit. That is very important doctrinally. We just don't have time to go there this morning. But, but remember, in the background, Jesus Christ has made all of this possible when he went to the cross for us. But there is enough here for them to realize that the new covenant is marked by following the Spirit, that it will be completely different than the old covenant marked by following the law. That is why the writer of Hebrews says something very remarkable in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. The writer of Hebrews is going to talk about the new covenant in Hebrews, but he he says this, this is one verse I'll look at. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first covenant, the old covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish. So he's saying that trying to live for God and following the rules and codes is now obsolete because we have the Spirit of God within us. And we all know what obsolete is because we live in a world full of inventions. And when you don't talk about obsoleteness, if that's even a word, uh, look at technology. And you can understand what obsolete is because we have all of these technological inventions. So right now, I am speaking into a microphone and I have my iPhone here and I have my iPad and we have projectors running. Have you ever noticed that? Okay. And uh, we have sound equipment in the back and there is electric lighting that we take for granted just because we expect it to be here. And there is a lot of new technology that has frankly rendered the old technology practically useless. I had to get used to this little wire they keep trying to put around my neck, okay? Because this is a new technology. And it somehow connects to the soundboard and it makes me uh, have a, a larger voice. And so... Uh, All of this new technology is something that we live with all of the time. I can think of half a dozen examples just standing right here. Air conditioning. Uh, Rather than bringing fans to church, have you ever uh, seen the ladies sitting there, especially with the nice fans in churches? Maybe if you were in an old church building a long time ago. Uh, What about evening services? We we, uh, we talked about having uh, groups... uh, together in the evening or having an evening service eventually in our church. You know that evening services were not a thing in the church for centuries and centuries, but do you know why? Because the gas lamp hadn't been invented. Uh, once sun, the sundown came, that, that was it. And until the gas lamp, the really the evening service was not uh, a thing. Uh, for example, notice that we are projecting images onto a screen. And what do we call these? We call these slides. Why? Because it used to be that pictures like this could only be projected onto screens with a projector that shined light through like a little picture framed with cardboard. How many of you have used slides before? Okay, a lot of you, right? And if uh, you slide it into the projector, it would broadcast it with this light. My parents owned a state-of-the-art projector where you could put about a hundred slides into a big wheel. 
and advance the slides with a click of a button. And, and that particular slide projector, if you remember these, they were, they were nice and round and on top. They put, you'd put 100 slides in there and you would click it and it would, it would move in the projector. Those were invented in 1965. And they were manufactured for less than 40 years before they stopped making them. Because you had to take the picture and then get the film developed as slides. And if you had them developed as slides, you could no longer use them for regular pictures. Then you had to load them on the projector and the images were not nearly as sharp as we see them today. So it was so much more work and you had to pay for the slides to be developed. And once you got everything done, once you got the image projected up there, it just wasn't as clear as we see today. It wasn't as useful. And so uh, this, is the, this is the projector uh, that, uh, that my parents had. And, and it's not totally full, you can see there, but that's how they would project the slides. Now, by, uh, by comparison, I could take an iPhone picture of you right now, and in mere seconds, that could be projected onto the screen with much higher definition than we had like in the olden days with the slides. And, and I'll tell you something else. What's more... Eventually, these slides will wear out. Eventually, the sunlight will get to them and they'll deteriorate and the digital versions will last on and on and again. So, so in the end, the point is that we're not simply talking about new technology that makes things a lot better. We're talking about technology that produces something we couldn't even have in the past. And that is like it is when we're dealing with following the law and bringing us into holiness in the sight of God through the Spirit rather than the law. Even if we wanted to try to follow the law, to try to follow the law to make ourselves righteous before God, it would be a colossal fail. But we have been given an amazing gift from God through Christ, the Holy Spirit, who will never leave us. Now, there's another reason that living by walking with the Spirit is superior to following the law. Not only is the Holy Spirit alone constantly with us, but secondly, the Holy Spirit alone can keep us from sin. Only the Holy Spirit, compared to the law, will actually keep us from sin. When, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you came to Him saying, I don't want my sin anymore. I want Jesus Christ. We, we, we don't come adding Christ to the bag of everything else we have in our lives. We abandon everything else. And we embrace Christ alone. And by providing for us the Holy Spirit, God has given us a way for sin to be shut down in our hearts. And we will yield to His continual holy presence. We see this in verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word gratify is a word that simply means to bring to an end, to finish, to accomplish. Having sinful desires is normal for fallen people. Don't beat yourself up because you have sinful desires. Temptation will come. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that it's common for this to happen. But when we bring those desires to completion, when we bring them to an end, when we act upon them by doing them, then those desires become sin. So Paul says in verse 17 that there's this tug of war going on. 
for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to, the bad things that you want to do. Most every day, I take our beagle for a walk. His name is Todd. And he is a very stubborn dog. And if he gets his mind, or I should say, if he gets his nose on something, other than what I want to do as far as walking down a particular path, uh, he will pull in that direction. And it does not matter what you say to him. He's not listening anyway. Uh, he, he is going to pull in that direction. And I'm on the other end of the leash holding him back and trying gently to get him back on the path. And that is what is going on in our hearts. If we simply follow our fallen desires, we will drift into sin. And sometimes we push our way stubbornly in the sinful direction. Or we know that we're in the wrong, but we won't admit it. And we persist in our error. But as a believer in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit pulling us back. His desires are to follow Christ. And sometimes those are against our desires. And he's attempting us to get back on the path of God's will. And the best way to walk and to please God is to simply follow the gentle leading, the gentle tugging of the Holy Spirit. Don't be like Todd, okay? Sometimes I have to pick him up and carry him a ways down the road to get him off the scent so that he'll actually walk in the right direction again. Don't struggle against the Spirit, against what you know is right, because God is glorified when we follow the Spirit obediently. And when we are following the Spirit, it's not because we're trying to obey legal code. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 18. Look at this verse. He says, if, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, if, if the divine power that holds you back from sin is not legal code. It's not a list of rules that are guiding you. It is the person of the Holy Spirit himself who is saying, no, 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 do not go this direction. Or, yes, move in this direction. Now, hand in hand with this truth that the Holy Spirit alone keeps us from sin is the parallel idea that the Holy Spirit alone will produce godly virtues, godly things in my life. So we will move quickly to this final reason. This is the third reason that following the Spirit is far superior to following the law. The Spirit not only keeps us from sin, but He also encourages our godly, holy direction. And we see this in verses 19 through 23. He says, Now the works of the flesh, the sinful desires of our fallen nature, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So in other words, this list is far from exhaustive. Things like these. Sins of the spirit and sins of the flesh. Minor sins of the spirit, minor sins of the flesh. Gross sins of the spirit, gross sins of the flesh. Things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and, and sometimes our nature is to tug in that direction. James says every one of us is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The, the dirty little secret is that it's not true all the time that the devil made me do it. Sin is within me. I, I desire that. And, and, and James says sin, when it is conceived, uh, 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 brings forth death. 
Right? Sin, when it is full blown, he says, brings forth death. We have this, this temptation that gives birth to sin, and sin, when it grows up, brings death. And, and, and in our fallen nature, we want that. We tug in that direction. But, he says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. This has nothing to do with legal code. Now, I want you to look at these two lists and sort of compare them. Do you think that a person who is loving is going to be jealous or cause dissensions in the body of Christ? I mean, think about it. The the, the top have, have some pretty bad things in that list. But if the Spirit is leading us in the bottom list and we're obediently following, do you think we're going to be committing any of those sins in the top list? Do you think that a joyful or patient person is going to be given over the fits of anger? Do you think that someone whom the Spirit is leading to be a peacemaker is going to be causing strife? What about someone who is kind? Will they be going around causing divisions? What about someone who is good, morally upright? Do you think that that person will be guilty of these terrible immoral sins mentioned in the list? Now, now we fall into sin and God is gracious to us. We confess our sins and, and, and he's faithful and willing to forgive us our sins. But on a normal basis, our, if we're walking in the spirit, would we fall into these sins? What about those who are gentle or exercising self-control? Do you think that they are people who would commit the... Or how would you know not to steal unless you read the commandment, you shall not steal? There are at least two very good answers to that question. First, the scriptures still give us in the New Testament, not to mention what we learn from God in the Old Testament, plenty of guidance outside of obeying Jewish legal code to help us understand what the will of the Lord is. And as I said last Uh, time we talk about this, the Spirit never contradicts the Word of God because He wrote the Word of God. So we have lots of great ideas about the kinds of things that please God as we obey Him. However, before we even go there, we know that, that the Spirit leads us into these wonderful qualities that Jesus Christ Himself modeled for us. And that would transform us as a person if we are to have them in our lives It would make us a completely different person. Think about that. What if we always acted in love? Always. I mean, from this moment on, everything we did, we acted in love. Love is a sacrificial desire to meet the needs of others without thinking about our own interests. What if we were consistently loving all the time? What if we were always joyful? You say, I've met people like that. They seem to be always happy. You just want to slap them, okay? I know we feel that way sometimes. Let's let's talk about true joy that's internal sometimes. It's not always on the outside. What if you were always joyful? Joy takes place when you delight in God's providence in your life, whether you think it's good or bad, easy or difficult. James even tells us to have joy in trials, not because we love pain, but because we know that God is building patience in our lives. And that means that we can choose to be joyful. In other words, we can choose to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and be a person of joy. What if we were truly always joyful, never pessimistic, never sarcastic, never sorrowful? The Holy Spirit also produces peace, which is a sense of wholeness, that everything is okay, that God is in control. What about patience? 
that ability to rest and trust God, even during times when I am tested or when I'm confronted by somebody else's insensitivity or carelessness. The Spirit tells me how to respond. Have you ever been impatient with someone and immediately the Holy Spirit rebuked you and said, you know, you should not have said that to that person? What did you do? A couple of years ago, I lost my temper with a cashier in Ingalls. I'll never forget this. I know you're laughing because I, you know, I'm normally a pretty nice guy, but uh, I walked into Ingalls and I was heading past the first cashier and on my way into the store and the man she was waiting with, waiting on, didn't have his Ingalls card. Okay. And as I was going by, she said, sure, sir, would you mind kindly letting this man borrow your card so he can get the discounts? Well, I'm not a fan of grocery store cards to begin with because I think they're just a gimmick. And, uh, you know, it gets people in the store. And they ought to put a card at the register for the cashiers so if somebody doesn't have it, they do that at Bilo, okay? Uh, But they don't do it at Ingalls. uh, So if somebody doesn't have it, they can use the card. And, And it just really annoyed me not because I cared about letting this guy use my card. I mean, he could have my card for all I cared. But because they were asking me to solve their problem. And this was not a good business model. And I told her what I thought about the whole system and how ridiculous it is. And uh, I let the man use the card. And I, you know, my wife tells me I'm more intense than I think sometimes when I get onto something. Then I headed into the store to get what I needed. And the Holy Spirit rebuked me. I mean, rebuked me. And he said, that was wrong. How unloving. How impatient. How ungentle. How arrogant. And it was like this weight that pressed down on me. And there was no Bible verses running through my mind. And no checklist of things I should say or not say to cashiers that I had to check with. I had been very unchristlike in my response, and I waited till the lady had a break. I could not wait to talk to her. I said, ma'am, will you please forgive me for talking to you like that? I had no right to do that. I said, you're working very hard here, and that was so wrong of me to talk to you like that. Please forgive me. We talked for a minute. She said, oh, you just made my day coming and saying that. And I was like, well, maybe I should go and insult a few more people, and then, you know... Apologize to them too, and I can go around making other people's days or whatever. But have you been there before when you've done something or said something? How was your response? I wish I could stand here and say, I've, I've done exactly what the Spirit wanted me to do every time He brought that weight into me. But He does that to us as believers. That's, that's not your conscience just making it up. If you're a believer, if you want to follow the Lord, this is what is going to happen. And it is a far superior way than thinking what is the right thing to do in every single, single situation based on what I've learned. Following that method alone. The Spirit knows what He's doing. You know, we learn a lot about the supremacy of the Spirit when we look at the book of Acts and the people who are changed by the Spirit. The first thousands and thousands of believers in Acts were Jews who came to Christ, who embraced their Messiah. And as God-fearing Jews, they had been faithful to the law for so many years. They'd come to the temple and the synagogue to meet with God's people and to pray and hear the Scriptures taught. When the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts 2, Luke says they devoted themselves to 
the apostles' teaching. They couldn't get enough preaching. And the fellowship, they couldn't get enough of one another. And the breaking of bread and the prayers, actually, which means they're, they're, they're worshiping together. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. It's like their love for one another and their love for doctrine and their love for the Lord just exploded because of the pouring of the Spirit. They could have that, before that, they could have no doubt pointed to so many different evidences in their lives of how they were following what God wanted them to follow. But now the lid was blown off and they weren't watching some code to tell them what to do. They were following the Spirit. The Spirit always leads us to do more. Here's another thing. These God-fearing Jews, before they came to believe that Jesus was their Messiah, they had no doubt been giving their tithes to the temple as the law instructed. The tithe, by the way, is not necessarily 10%, depending on how much property you owned and what your income level was and so forth. You could have been required to give 4%, 6%, 10%, 15%, as much as 22 or 23% annually. It was, it was more of like a taxation system. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out, giving exploded. Acts 2.45 says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They, they were cleaning out their stuff and selling it. And, and it says they would come and they would lay the money at the apostles' feet. And Barnabas uh, sold some property he had on the island of Cyprus and came and probably brought this enormous amount and laid it at the apostles' feet. What led him to do that? It was the Holy Spirit. One other example, sometimes the Holy Spirit led them to disobey the authority that was over them under the law. When the Jewish Sanhedrin commanded the apostles to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit led them to continue to proclaim the gospel even though they were threatened for doing so. They argued that they had to obey God rather than men. And when they were eventually beaten in the temple for their insurrection, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. That's what the Holy Spirit does to us. That's how he leads. It's over the top. It's so much better than any other way to live. Not looking at the Scripture alone, necessarily. Not simply seeking the, the advice of somebody else about how to live alone, but walking in the Spirit, reading God's Word, praying for wisdom, and eagerly desiring to follow God's will in your life. The Spirit is a constant companion urging us to follow the Lord. He alone can lead us away from the desires of our flesh and He alone can greatly and emphatically lead us to follow the Lord. And, and, and to give our life to the Spirit sometimes means we are going to end up following the Lord in a way we never thought of before. Maybe we never thought possible if we will yield to Him. If you will seek the Lord's will and search the Scriptures and pray for wisdom, then the Spirit will aliven and energize you to obey God in a way that merely following rules can never do. And as we do this together as a church, I am so excited to see what is God going to do with us if we truly learn to walk in the Spirit. Father, we...